Our first reading this morning is Psalm 32, and it's to be found on page 553 of the Pew Bibles, and it's a psalm of David. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. I'd like to encourage you to turn forward to page 1146 in those Bibles. This morning we restart our journey through the first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. In this chapter, he's just been telling the church members there not to take lawsuits against one another. And then in that left-hand column at verse 9, we pick up his argument about a theme he's talked about a little already, sexual immorality. So verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that our bodies, that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. 
flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Well, let me pray. Can we just get that down a fraction, Neil? Father, we do pray as we commence this series. Father, no doubt there are difficult issues to talk about in the world we live in, and the issue of sex and sexuality is one of them, and I pray that you give uh, me great grace and wisdom, and Father, all of us, hearts to hear what your word has to say. And Father, may we be uh, a group of people who are godly and who honour you in this part of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to talk to us about sex. And I've got a number of things I want to say today. It's kind of an introductory talk. Um, And I want to start by getting straight into the message. Um, When I grew up, Um, I was born in 1964. I'm 51 years of age. And the first thing I want to say is, um, over the 50 years of my life, we've come to a point where everything and anything goes with sex today. Um, Today, as I speak on this topic, uh, there'll be people here who are significantly older. Um, I don't know if Wal's here today, uh, but Wal is 98. And I was thinking he's 47 years my senior. Uh, There'll be other people who are listening here today who will be significantly younger, some as young as 14 and 15. They're 36 years my junior. And between those two age brackets, there's an enormous amount of difference in terms of what people have understood to do with the topic of sex and sexuality. And if you took some of our senior members of the congregation, those, say, in their 80s, and I know we've got people who are in their 80s here this morning, And if I took you and sat you down with some of uh, my daughter's friends who are in their university years, um, your experiences in growing up in relation to this question of sex and sexuality would be vastly different. Vastly. Um, I was born in 64. Uh, It was the era of the so-called sexual revolution. And you can see on the screen behind me, uh, John and Yoko Ono. And they were kind of poster children in one ways for this sexual revolution with their um, very well-known bed-ins. And before this era uh, of 1964, and you people, if I can say uh, warmly, will remember a very different era to what we are currently experiencing. People didn't openly talk about sex. You probably didn't hear about it from the pulpit like you will today. It was a common belief uh, in our culture and society that sex was for marriage. Uh, Within the church, the concept that sex was to be glorious within a marriage and to be enjoyed probably didn't get a lot of airtime. There was a degree of prudishness about it. Uh, There were very clear beliefs that were held not just in the church but in society 
Uh, pornography was wrong, homosexuality was wrong, abortion was illegal, sex before marriage, well, you might want to, uh, but good boys and girls certainly didn't do this. Uh, I'm sure boys and girls did get up to mischief, I've got no doubt about that, but it's with a sense of guilt. And so before 1960, if you looked at the church, the church was seen as a, a type of guardian of moral virtues uh, that needed to be adhered to for the good order of society. It had a voice and the church was somewhat respected. And no doubt there were debates about the Christian faith, the literal meaning of scripture, uh, the reliability of the gospel accounts, the believability of Jesus' bodily resurrection. They were circulating uh, through the 20th century. But yet the ethics and morals of the scripture weren't being debated in the way they are today. But since my birth, nearly everything has changed on this topic. And I just want to take us very briefly through the changes that I've seen since being born. Now, I'm sure, uh, if I can say, you are very well aware of them. Um, you have a look, there's John and Ono. Uh, they were in the 60s, and that was the advent of the, six, of the sexual revolution. Uh, and you look at the church uh, and where we are today, and there's no doubt uh, that what we believe and what has happened in society are at vastly different eras. And there you see Marcus Lone. And I put him up as a picture of a different era. He's the former Archbishop of Sydney. Now, in 1967, this was the cover of Time magazine. Does anyone remember this? It was the advent of the pill. And there's no doubt that the contraceptive pill, and I'm not against the pill at one level, but it made an enormous difference in terms of the sexual capacities, particularly of women, to give them sexual freedom. And this is what the article said. The pill is a miraculous tablet that contains as little as one thirtieth thousandth of an ounce of chemical. It costs 11 cents to manufacture. A month's supply now sells for $2 retail. It is little more trouble to take on schedule than a daily vitamin. Yet in a mere <clears throat> six years, it has changed and liberated the sex and family life of a large and still growing segment of the US population. Eventually, it promised to do the same for much of the world. Now, there's a lot of truth in what was said there. That was 1967. 1969, abortion was legalised in Australia. You keep moving, you have no-fault divorce that was introduced in the 70s. Chief Justice Lionel Murphy introduced that in 1975. You then had the move to legalise homosexuality. That took place between 1973, uh, where it began in the ACT, and finally uh, in Tasmania in 1997. Now, previously it had been outlawed and typically men could be imprisoned before 1960 for what was called sodomy. But since then, we've had the gay movement that began in the 70s and the 80s and continues today with the push for the legalisation of gay marriage in Australia. Now, our language has changed. Now, I wonder if you know what this acronym is. Now, I only heard about this about two years ago when, Professor, uh, when Dr Patricia Wirakun came. Uh, you might be able to tell by the colours of the rainbow that it's something to do with the gay movement. It means literally lesbian, gay, bi or transsexual. And it's an acronym to describe, if I can say, uh, the multifaceted movement of the gay movement. Now you put on top of that the rise of pornography. Uh, when I was a teenager, the only porn that you could view was Playboy or Penthouse. And you either had to have a dad who had a secret naughty stash somewhere and one of my friends had a father like that and you'd go and sit under the house 
if you were gutsy enough, or you could buy it from your local newsagents. But there had to be a certain sense of bravado about that because you probably knew the newsagent's owner and they probably knew your parents. Now, that was back in the 70s. With the advent of the internet, porn now is delivered to your doormat via the computer. I mean, I never forget one day I was working at the last church I was at in Fig Tree. I think it was the early 2000s. And I opened my screen up and I turned around and the secretary came in. I didn't know what was on the screen behind me. And I'd been, what do they call it, spammed? And there was this pornographic image on the screen behind me as I smiled and said, good morning, Kay. And I turned around in horror. And I said, that is not for me. <laughs> A chilling statistic. More than 70% of male internet users from 18 to 34 visit a pornographic site in a typical month these days. That's from the USA. I don't think we're any different. For females, the numbers are much higher than people think. You think about the way sex has changed on the screen. And there's no doubt the screen in terms of both TV and film is a culture setter. It normalises things. Now, when I grew up, the most provocative show was number 96. With all the controversy back in the 70s because there was nudity now on a TV screen. Now, that is just passe when you think about what currently is in, on offer for TV shows and movies. Now, against this backdrop of the sexual revolution, let me make another couple of observations. The first is the death of the Christian God. There's no doubt that since the 1960s there, with the sexual revolution, there has been a decline in Christian faith in Western countries and in particular in Australia. And the Christian faith at a national level and its influence on debates regarding morality have at best been marginalised, at worst completely rubbed out and at times rubbished. In other words, what we believe as Christians about sex is cute as best for those who might be good doers. But to most, it sounds completely prudish and completely outdated. To the more cynical, views such as the ones that I'll be articulating, not just today, but through the series, are a classic expression of the power play that religion wants to engage in to try and control and manipulate people and society. You listen to the debates on places like Q&A, and that is what we are portrayed as by the germane greers of the world. We're into power, we're into control, we're into manipulation. The catch cry of today is let people be free to enjoy and express themselves as they wish. Now, on that Q&A program I showed two weeks ago, when Peter Hitchens proclaimed the most dangerous idea in the world is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, what did Jermaine Greer proclaim is the most dangerous idea? Let people be free. And what they're saying is, uh, do not seek to control them. Let them do whatever they want. Now, the impact of that has been, no doubt, a drop in morality of professing Christians in the Western world. The end result for us as a church is that what was accepted without question as being wrong, though maybe struggled with, is now debated as perhaps being okay. Now, this, I'm not talking about outside the church, I'm talking about within the church. 
at a broad level. We now debate alternate lifestyles. What we naturally turned away from, we now in some quarters accept, and it affects us all. And in the area of sexual morality, we're under enormous pressure to conform to what the world around us would say is okay and is normative and to accept a more libertine sexual ethic. And the result is, I think, this. We begin to separate our Christian faith in terms of I've got a relationship with God from actually how we live. And that is the great danger. That we think this is okay to live like this, but yes, I trust in Jesus, I follow him, I love to sing those hymns, they make me feel warm inside. And it's at this point I'd love us to turn to our Bibles and open up at 1 Corinthians, 11, 1 Corinthians 6 on page 1146. Everything and anything goes today. And I'm going to start in the middle of the passage, verse 12. Because what's fascinating is, if I can say, um, the catch cry of today of freedom, which you see in the world, is exactly what Paul was engaging with in Corinth some 1900 years ago. It just goes to show nothing's changed. We've come full circle. They lived in a very sexually liberated culture in much the same way as we do. And the church was affected by it. And I have, Let me read to you from verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything. And you see, what Paul is doing here is he is actually articulating the catch cries of the Corinthian Christians, I can do anything. And Paul's response is, well, actually, not everything's beneficial. Actually, I'll not be mastered by anything. Paul says, well, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. In other words, there's a separation of what we do with our bodies compared to our spirit. And it doesn't matter what we do with them because ultimately they're going to be destroyed by God. Death will come, the worms will eat. So in other words, our bodies are not viewed as having a role to play in our spiritual development and our faith. And note Paul's words, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and for the Lord to the body. In other words, what we do with our bodies does matter. Well, that's the first thing. Anything and everything goes and anything and everything was going in Corinth. But as we turn and have a look at what Paul has to say, uh, if I can put it as simply as possible, there is a thing in the Bible called sexual immorality. And it is still true today as it was back then. And as a minister, I want to affirm that sex can be beautiful. I want to say sex is right. Uh, sex is a glorious gift from God that is powerful and meaningful. It's a God-given gift to husbands and wives to unite a marriage. But there are boundaries put in place by God with this beautiful gift as to how sex is to be partaken of and to be enjoyed. Now, our culture would affirm that you can experience good sex and bad sex. There's no doubt they'd say that. 
And as Christians, we'd want to take that a step further. I would agree that there is good sex and bad sex, but the Bible says there is right sex and wrong sex, different to our culture. There is a thing called sexual immorality. Let's have a look at verse 9. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now there's actually nine categories of people there in the original language. Um, Two of them are folded together, which is the issue of homosexuality. We're going to come and look at that next week. The categories relate to people who persist or are known by a certain sinful or ungodly way of life. In other words, uh, people who define themselves by their sin. Four of them relate explicitly to sexual sin. And I just want to go through them one at a time. Um, Because one of the things I've realised is... um, our understanding of Christian morality has dropped immensely. And I wanted to say across the whole parish today, there are certain things that are just wrong today. They are wrong from back in Paul's time. They're wrong today. And the first thing that Paul says is sexual immorality is wrong. People who are sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the word used here is pornos. It's from the original Greek word. It's where we get pornography from. And it's a word that has a broad range of meaning. And to understand it fully, you really need to go back to the book of Leviticus because there you see God's intentions in terms of sexual ethics. Now, in simple terms, um, what sexual immorality means, it means engaging in sexual relationships or activity outside the boundary of marriage. And we'll see that marriage is on view here because Paul quotes later on Genesis 1, 2 and 3 in talking about the sex act and it not to be outside of the marriage. And you see, sex is for within marriage. And so sexual immorality is to have sex outside of marriage. It means sleeping together. Now, the more specific form of that is a second thing that is mentioned here, adultery. It refers to married people having sexual relationships outside of marriages, i.e. an affair. Now, there's two descriptions here for homosexuality. Um, If I can put it this way, one is a passive word, one is an aggressive word. I'll explain that next week, only to say, Paul says, it's wrong. They are both active and passively. Men are not to partake, and I would say women as well, uh, in homosexual activity. Now, why do I mention this? And I need to say this gently. Our culture thinks anything goes when it comes to sexuality. And there's not just been an expansion of what society thinks is acceptable when it comes to sex. There's been a complete breakdown in how we talk about sex and maintain a sense of respect and decency on this topic. I played two weeks ago, I mentioned a video clip of Peter Hitchens on Q&A. It was the week of dangerous ideas. There was a packed audience at the Opera House. The Q&A was filmed before live. And Peter, as I said, uh, his dangerous idea was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But if you watch that program, on the same program was a gay activist, Dan Savage. 
And Peter Hitchens was speaking. And to shock Peter, the gay activist Dan Savage uh, spoke about his ability and sexual prowess as a homosexual. I won't go into the details, but I was shocked by it. That here he was talking explicitly live on TV at the Opera House. And there was some sense of shock in the audience, but there was a lot of laughter as well. And I mention it because, you see, I think we've become completely desensitised in our society to sexual things. And it's to such a glorious activity that there's a mystery about and a privacy about that should be within the bounds, if I can say, of the home. There is a sacredness about sex which we have just completely lost in our society. Now, if you wanted to use an analogy, now I'm a boy, so I'm going to talk about cars. Um, if you were to talk about sex, sex is like the Ferrari of cars, the most expensive, the most wonderful machine that you can get. It is not like your 30-year-old Datsun 180B that you loan out to whoever and you give no care about. There is no way if I had a Ferrari, and I don't have one, it's worth saying, that any of you would ever drive it. Or my children, for that matter. But if I had a Datsun 180B that was 30 years old, come and get it. <laughs> and you see, sex has been reduced to a Datsun 180B in our society. There is no sense of wonder, of sacredness about it. It is just now a physical act that you can enjoy and do whatever you want with. And what the Bible is saying to us is, actually, we've got this completely wrong. Anything doesn't go. There are real boundaries for the enjoyment of the gift of sex and sexuality. And marriage is the exclusive context for it. And in today, we need to say, as Paul said some 1900 years ago, sex outside of marriage is wrong, both heterosexual and homosexual. Pornography is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Prostitution is wrong. The Bible says this is what is sexual immorality. Now, if you think Paul is alone in this, have a listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says. The marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, this is not a light issue. It's a very significant issue in Scripture. Let me move to my third thing. Who you are is to control how you live. One of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, why live a morally pure life? And I want to give you a couple of wrong answers first before we look at what Paul has to say. Uh, the incorrect answer on this of why live a morally pure life, it's not to earn God's approval. And there's no doubt in past ages, people thought, if I keep my virginity until I'm married, I'm doing the right thing by God, which you are, but that will somehow earn me brownie points. No, it won't. We're incapable of leading a life that earns God approval. The gospel says actually he forgives sinners and accepts them on the basis of his grace and not our works and not our morality. Now, another incorrect answer on why you should live a morally pure life is because we are better than the corrupted society around us. Now, that's wrong. 
And people sometimes will, if I can say, puff themselves up and think, yes, I'm trying to do the right thing here because we are better than those around us. Well, we're actually not better. Uh, we struggle with all the same struggles they have. And I know as I speak today that as the, uh, you, as you listen, all of us will have struggles in this area in different ways. We are no different at one level. What marks us out as different is not, if I can say, who we are. It's what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, why live a morally pure life? Listen to what Paul says. He says, that's what some of you were. Speaking of adulterers and people who are sexually immoral and greedy, etc., etc. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, who are you? as Christian people. That is why you don't engage in sexual immorality because you are people who have been cleansed. You are people who have been forgiven. You are people who have been justified. You've been declared innocent in God's sight. You're actually his children now. It's glorious. And so you want to live in a way that reflects who he is and his designs for humanity. You want to give him glory for the way He has wonderfully saved you. That is why we seek to live a pure life. Because we actually have already been made pure and clean. Now, no doubt we will have struggles. No doubt about that. And there's no doubt people can sometimes stumble and will sometimes stumble and fall in this area of sexual sin in just the same way as people will stumble with greed and hold on to their money instead of releasing the money to be generous to serve the needs of others. All of us are going to struggle in different areas. But what we're to be defined by is our identity. We actually are not sexually immoral people. We're people who seek to honour the Lord Jesus Christ as those who've been washed and sanctified and justified. And the language is significant. It's past tense. This is who you are. And so live that out in the way you live. Well, the second reason is that the resurrection changes everything. And what's fascinating is, in verse 14, he turns the question of ethics to the resurrection. Have a look at verse 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will also raise us. That's an interesting thing to introduce here in this discussion about sexual ethics and purity in terms of sexual behaviour. Have a think about this. God raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, what's the resurrection got to do with sex? It's a good question to ask. Well, Paul answers it. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? In other words, when Christ raised, was raised from the dead, as people who trust in him, guess what that meant for you? It means that we have been raised up as well. Now, I know as we struggle with our age and as we get older, we think, I don't feel like I've got a resurrection body. By faith, we do. You see, we've already been raised up because Christ has been raised up for us. And he is seated in heaven for us. And we actually are, by faith, united with him. And we are one body with him. And when you think about that, Paul says... Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Well, never. 
In other words, what you do with your body matters immensely because it's a body that Christ has died for. It's a body that will be resurrected with Christ, already has been by faith. And so your body and soul, you can't separate them to say, yes, I trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter though what I do with my body. Actually, no, we are one. We are raised people by faith. And when we engage in sexual immorality on this particular topic, it's like, if I can say, if I'm having adultery with a neighbour, which I'm not, I just want to add, it's like I'm taking Jesus into bed with her, is what Paul is saying here. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said the two will become flesh. And here you see why sex is just for marriage. The incredible power of sex and its God-given gift to us is because it can take two people who are different, profoundly, and as they commit to each other in marriage, it's this act which bonds them together physically, emotionally, and dare I say it, spiritually. There's something incredibly powerful as literally a man and a woman unite and they become one. I was very struck when the sexologist, Dr. Patricia Wirakoon, came and spoke here two years ago and she said, this is one of the impacts of having sex with multiple partners. Every time you have sex with someone else, there's a part of you that sticks to them and them that sticks to you. It's like sticking gum. And you leave a part of yourself with every partner you've had. And what happens is, emotionally, relationally, your capacity for intimacy is lowered every time. Because we're designed to only be intimate with a lifelong faithful companion in marriage. And the more you give yourself sexually to your husband or your wife, the greater the intimacy grows when it's, if I can say, a sex that is built on mutual consenting love. But when you have that outside of the boundaries of marriage, there's a part of you that you just leave all around the place. And emotionally you become desensitized and incapable of intimacy. It is an incredibly powerful and wonderful and beautiful act that unites people. And our bodies are part of that, if I can say, mystery of our spirituality. And because Jesus has risen from the dead and will be raised with him, our bodies matter and what we do with them matters. Which leads me to finish the message with Paul's simple words. He closes by saying, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God, who are not your own? You are bought at a price, therefore honour God with your bodies. You see, our bodies belong to the Lord, and we're to honour him with them. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can stop, and in this sex-crazy world, I want to pray for us, not just here as a congregation at 8 o'clock, but as a church, 
that we would understand your plans for us in marriage and with sex and we would honour you with our bodies. We would seek to lead lives that are pure and godly and within marriage honour and love and serve our partners and in singleness use our bodies to honour you and to love and serve others appropriately. And may we together build a community of love and purity here at St Matthews. Amen.